Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Live from NPR News in Lincoln, I'm Kyle Steinhauser. Not really. This is the Knowledge from the Couch podcast episode number 23. Guys, what is happening? How's it going? What up? I don't know what else to say. I feel like I say 25 different colloquial dumb ways to say hello every single time. We we meet on the hallowed streets of the podcast world where you hopefully tune in to learn something new about something you didn't know about, and I like to come in and just shoot the shit for a little bit of time and just talk to you about how my life is going and what we have plans uh, with the podcast and how everything is going with that. So I, I think so far, so far this month, we've done a really good job with the uh, Black History Month theme. Uh, today we'll be talking not necessarily so much about one specific man, one specific figure in black history, but we're going to, this is more of a, I, I would call it more of a, what is, what has been contributed, you know, what has been contributed to, you know, the, the good of mankind or the good of all, especially in these United States where we live, you know, from black culture. So that's really kind of the, the, the theme of the episode today. And I just wanted to, to, get this particular story out there because I read it uh, about a month ago or so when I was thinking about doing, you know, this this entire theme for the month of February for the show and I th- I you know, I didn't really know how I was going to handle this story because the man himself, Onesimus, who we'll be talking about in a few minutes here, he does there's not really a lot of information about him in particular. In fact, when you try to dig deeper and you you type his name into Google and you see what you find, you usually get more information about the the biblical Onesimus uh, from many, many centuries prior to the one that we're going to talk about. Um, by the way, this one that we are going to talk about was named this after that one, and we'll talk about that as well in a little bit. But it's a really interesting story, and it has to do with smallpox as well. And you know me, when you if you listen to the Spanish flu episode, I, I feel like I, I got into almost a feverish uh, rage of talking, not in terms of anger, but because stuff like this is really in my wheelhouse, I think. I really enjoy talking about, you know, the scientific and the disease process and stuff like that really, you know, really resonates with me. It's something that I do have a reasonable understanding of and a reasonable knowledge of, so I can really kind of go on a tangent, and I really enjoy talking about that sort of thing. So that's kind of how we're going to treat the episode today. It's going to be a bit of, of a mix between that and the man himself and the, and the contribution of uh, what he did to help aid future societies in, you know, not all dying of smallpox all the time. But anyhow, I was just thinking... Um, Getting off that topic onto the topic of the show itself, I was just thinking um, fairly soon after the last episode of this month's theme, which should be coming, if if this episode drops on February 16th, the next one will drop February 23rd, and then we won't have any more days left in February, which, you know, is a shame, and if February was uh, the length of a regular month, any other month on the calendar, we would have five shows in February, but four shows is still uh, a pretty good representation, and so I will drop next week's show on time, and then at some point before the end of the month, I will give you sort of a a mini episode, and I'm going to do this with every with every month, you know, when I'm going to talk about whatever the theme is going to be for the next month, you know, the the next block of shows. I'll have sort of a mini episode, and I'll kind of call it, like, I guess, like a prequel 
episode to the next month's content where I'll just literally all I'm going to do is is pipe that one into your feed. I'm going to talk about you know the show as a whole. Maybe we'll just chit chat for ten or fifteen minutes about uh, nothing whatsoever, or maybe we'll talk about you know where the show is going content wise, not just like oh the show is this now. Maybe we'll talk about what I plan to talk about. Maybe we'll we'll ask a couple of questions and say, you know, what does this mean to you, and, and what does this you know have to do with your own experiences, and we'll just kind of uh, elaborate on those ideas and then we'll kind of get into what the next month's theme is going to be and it should only take maybe 15 or 20 minutes uh episode wise compared to this i won't chuck in a bunch of music i won't chuck in a bunch of other stuff and it'll just be a real quick cut down episode that's going to talk about hey here's what we're going to do next month instead of me trying to cram it in the end of episode like oh by the way we're doing this bye so that's I guess that's what we're gonna do. That's that's how this is going to go from now on. I think so far, um, I've never had more downloads and listens. So I think everything is going really well with the uh, the current direction of the show. And I have to thank everybody for being so kind and being so loyal to listening to my voice week in and week out, droning on and on and on. So without further ado. Let's get into the episode. Episode uh, number three of the second season of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. Episode number 23, if you're keeping count that way. Let's talk about Onesimus and smallpox. about smallpox and the man who helped fight away an American epidemic, a man named Onesimus. Now, first, let's, let's, let's just talk real quick about smallpox itself. Now, smallpox is a real, real humdinger of a virus. Uh, it's probably overall just about as deadly as the flu but it's a lot more insidious in the way it infects and the amount of time it incubates and the amount of time it takes for someone to die of smallpox. Now, smallpox has probably been around, uh, most people agree, since probably somewhere around two, 3,000 years before the Common Era. So a good 4,000-odd years have there been you know, murmurs and talks of of a smallpox in terms of, of, of recorded history. I should make that extremely clear uh, in terms of recorded history. Now, has smallpox existed in humanity before that? Very likely. It is extremely, extremely likely. And it, it's just one of those, the, it's, it's one of those viruses in the pox family, and there's about 68, 69 of those viruses, and there there are various different ones. They're They're very similar to one another. Um, the two closest cousins that humans would probably, you know, relate to know about in terms of, of how we eventually did learn to vaccinate against smallpox is the smallpox virus itself and cowpox, which was, was used, uh, later than the story we're about to tell to, you know, eventually vaccinate against smallpox and then so on and so forth before we kind of figured out what we wanted to do. But before that, you have all these different pox viruses just running rampant around humans. And the key to this one running so rampant and lasting so long, you know, when you think about the flu, let's go back a little bit. Uh, When we talked about the Spanish flu in particular, the Spanish flu and most flus, most influenza viruses, are a lot faster moving and a lot quicker moving than, say, something like a pox virus, like smallpox. So when you have 
the flu going around, really it, it, it flares up and then relatively burns out quickly. And even though it's very contagious and basically nobody has any real good immunity against the flu because it mutates so often, it's usually with the help of modern medical science and for the most part, you know, minus the Spanish flu, which was, as you remember, if you if you go back and listen to that episode, the Spanish flu being kind of weird because it came, A, in a weird time of year, not during the winter months, but during the summer months, and B, it tended to uh, attack in those cytos- that, that cytostorm sort of thing inside of a, a younger and healthier people and killed a lot of people who shouldn't be, you know, really vulnerable against the flu. Typically, the flu, like a predator, attacks the weakest of us, the the small children with, with immune systems that are, are immature and just unable to fight a viral, you know, a, attack off. And then the elderly, who similarly have immune systems that over the, the course of their lives have become weaker and weaker, as well as organs that just can't quite keep up the fight for immunity. So... Anyhow, the flu usually just springs up, flares up like a wildfire, does its damage. For the most part, when you're in a modern medical system, you can kind of fight it off. Uh, most people are able to fight it off with with whatever we, we do, and then it sort of dies down again. Now, it never really goes away because somebody's always kind of a little carrier, plus birds and pigs in particular can also carry the flu. So then you have that, and especially birds, birds that migrate thousands of miles every year. Usually you go, they fly off, they kind of mingle amongst each other, and a new flu virus you know, will mutate, or many strains will mutate, and then they fly on back, all the while releasing it to pigs and humans, where we can then get sick from it again so that that's sort of the way that the flu that's how it can stay around but if the flu like we know it didn't have you know good common vectors like birds and pigs pretty good chance that the flu would be a lot more isolated it would be more like the ebola virus which you know with the whole ebola scare a few years ago everybody's freaking the fuck out about ebola mostly because ebola is is horrific uh, in the way it damages a human being, how quickly it can do so. But Ebola tends to really just burn out fast, and it's pretty treatable um, in a really good you know, medical system, or people are afraid of it enough that, that isolation is really good when it comes to Ebola. So Ebola doesn't tend to really move much from its origin sources, you know, whereas these pox viruses are very insidious. You know, that word, that that insidious, what does that mean? It's insidious in the way that it kind of crawls in you and lays dormant for a while. And then it starts to build. You know, it infects your cells, using your cells to rebuild itself. That's how viruses work. Viruses really aren't alive in, in a traditional sense. They are basically fragments of DNA or RNA that make their way into your own cells, into the nuclei of your own healthy cells, where it then hijacks the the the, the motor, the, the factory, the capabilities of your own cells to produce the things they need to produce, and instead tell the cell, hey, produce more of this instead. It's kind of like taking, uh, taking a flash drive out of your computer. Say the flash drive you did have in there had all the info you wanted in there, and you could always grab more copies of like the stuff you wanted. You have a bunch of like presentations and important documents on your flash drive. And every time you needed to like produce those documents where you whether you needed to email them to somebody or you needed to present a presentation like say a PowerPoint in front of people, you always had your your trusty flash drive to help you get the documents you need. These pox viruses and really every virus, but you know, as we talk about how insidious the pox viruses are kind of very sleight of hand you know switch out the flash drive that you had and give you a new one and the only difference is you don't really know that the new one is different than the old one so you plug that flash drive in you pull the files off and you produce those files instead of the ones you're looking for that's what it's doing to your cells your cells don't know any better so you have this new encoding you know rna or dna sequence that your cells 
will just continue to pump out. Well, all it's doing is pumping out more versions of the virus that has infected you, eventually blowing up the cell that it's a part of, and then those fragments continue on to other healthy cells. Now, that sounds awful, and if you didn't have any defense against it, it would kill you rather quickly because you would just continue the cycle of virus infects cell, cell reproduces viral parts, viral parts destroy the cell, you know, ad infinitum until you are dead. So humans, you know, obviously we have a an immune system that is both dumb and smart at the same time. There's the dumb version where you just attack anything that, you know, in the body shows up as a, I guess, foreign substance. So the body says, this is not supposed to be here. You know, chemicals are released uh, in the area, which then attracts the immune cells to just go fucking ape shit and destroy whatever it is that is. Then you have the smart immunity, which is, uh, you know, you're exposed to a certain uh, anti antibody and you make an antigen in response. And then later on, when you're exposed to the same later on, you're going to see, oh, the body can sort of sense that, you know, this is the same thing that we've had before. Let's send these particular cells towards those things and kill them off without them ever being able to really take hold and do their worst work. This is where immunity comes from. And immunity is important when we're talking about the smallpox virus in particular. Now, it's insidious, like we were saying before, I kind of got off on a little bit of a tangent, but it's insidious in the way that when it gets in there, it doesn't just blow up your spot. It's just the right amount of time to cook, to boil, to get ready to go that it can continue to exist in a society as long as it's not treated, but it doesn't just flash flash fire through like the flu does. And it's faster than, say, HIV, which is a very, very slow-moving virus that, you know, slowly but surely, over a matter of years, knocks down a person's immune system until eventually they get AIDS because their immune system is so destroyed. And at that point, they're basically susceptible to being killed by literally anything that can attack them because their immune system is nearly, nearly depleted. That's a very, very... I would say insidious virus, but it's almost too slow that if you know how to treat HIV and the best way to treat HIV is to put the roadblocks up and get rid of it, that you can basically knock it out from wherever you are very easily. Smallpox, on the other hand, takes about anywhere from two to four weeks to really run its course, which is a ton of time in a disease world especially, you know, when you are in close quarters with people, but even if you're not in close quarters with people. This is why smallpox in particular is always thought of as that that new world killer, right? The smallpox blanket being used as basically biological warfare by the British against Native Americans who had no inborn immunity against any real pox virus because there really wasn't much of a pox virus that ever spread around the North American continent. Until people from, you know, Europe, Africa, and uh, Asia ended up making their way over to the Americas, which were separated by oceans and, and really over, you know, thousands and thousands of years became isolated enough that there just wasn't any sort of immunity built up in the people of the time. So... You, you had these just awful amounts of deaths. And smallpox uh, is very, very harsh on the people that it attacks. So you have you have two really good, you know, the ways that you look at smallpox, you have two really good ways where it can sustain itself. And it's just a really tough virus, and it will go after a person. And now I'm, I, I, I really hate to put this anthropomorphic sort of sense that the virus thinks as a tough fighter um, because it's not. It's a virus. Virus isn't alive. Virus can't think for itself. But I like to put it that way because it makes it easier for us as humans to talk about them and to think about them in terms that we can understand more easily. So 
the smallpox virus, while it doesn't work as fast as, say, the flu or Ebola or something that is just, you know, that that flash in the pan sort of thing, it really goes to work while it's working. So you have this virus that is really just a steady marcher. Like it gets inside you, it starts its business, you know, makes itself in your healthy cells, busts those cells up and so on and so forth. Your immune system starts to fight it and smallpox is an extremely resilient virus, very tough to kill off. And since it takes about two to four weeks to really run its course in anybody, and when I say run its course, I mean you either survive it or it kills you. There's plenty of time, even in a time where transportation wasn't nearly as quick as it is these days. I mean, these days you can get on a flight and basically get from, say, Los Angeles or New York City. You can go from either of those cities and basically make it to almost anywhere in the world within a day. Pretty fucking fast. Much faster than a virus like, say, smallpox would work through a system. So really, in modern travel times, even in a car, you can get anywhere fairly quickly. So, you know, the the, the whole debate later on that we might talk about, about, you know, the weaponizing smallpox is a really scary thought to people these days, especially because the world is very small compared to the way it was, you know, back in the in ancient times up to, uh, you know, pre-modern times and even times that you wouldn't consider contemporaries of our time by any means. But, you know, three, four hundred years ago, 200 years ago, 100 years ago, hell, 70, 60 years ago, even people still getting smallpox and stuff. So you have this virus that can lay, you know, dormant for a bit, starts its work and really takes a long time to get through your system. So. It's an absolute devastator. Even if you are somebody out in the middle of goddamn nowhere, all it takes is contact with another person who is going to, you know, get the virus if they haven't had it before and they're living, obviously, to continue the cycle of smallpox. And smallpox, uh, it's unclear as to where it developed. It very likely developed somewhere in Africa, as most things do develop, and made its way literally everywhere on earth by some way or another usually by invading armies going somewhere uh and their soldiers carrying smallpox to the people who were never exposed or trading in terms of ships and things like that where people are carrying smallpox where people weren't exposed and of course the very famous uh Europeans of the old world heading over to the new world of the Americas and fucking annihilating native populations to the tune of like 90 to 95 percent killed by one disease or another but especially smallpox being one that just is it was an absolute devastator now smallpox for the most part probably kills anywhere between you know 20 to 40 so we'll say on average about 30 percent of the people in effects that's fucking insane i mean those that's much more deadly than the the flu Although the flu probably touches more people than smallpox ever did. The flu really only ever killed off like 3, 4, 5% of people max when you get a flu epidemic. If you had a smallpox epidemic, you were looking at like, you know, a third of your people just fucking dead, gone, because smallpox was so, you know, insane like that. It just crept along and fought along, and people just could not, could not fight this virus off. So we can see just... After that 15-minute, you know, historical kind of lesson-y thing about smallpox, that it's a big deal. It's a huge deal throughout human history, but especially now that we're getting to a point in time, and we'll be talking about Onesimus here in a second, and this is uh, basically 1700s, late 1600s, early 1700s, kind of in that era, so 17th and 18th century America, or 18th and, you know, 17th and 18th century world. So not really all that long ago, but now you're starting to see a lot more people move away from farming and move into urban centers. Now, still, the world at this point is largely still agricultural at this time, very much still agricultural. But this is the time where really you're starting to see people cram into big cities. This is where you're starting to see people really build up everywhere. Uh, The New World colonial cities which at this time were still colonies of 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 the british big cities like new york and boston and philadelphia 
you know, all these places growing and people cramming into these areas, you know, cities like London and, and, and Paris and Moscow and all these, you know, giant, you know, cities, Edo uh, over in Japan, everybody just cramming together. And when you cram people together, you get viral outbreaks because not only are people, you know, these carriers just as well as somebody out on the farm, they're also next to fucking literally everybody. And in a virus that takes as long to to solidify itself in a person and really run its course as smallpox is, you can imagine the utter fucking devastation that any time a, a, a viral outbreak, an epidemic like smallpox would occur, it would just kill tons of people. It was scary. I mean, it's a virus that not only kills people, which is the worst thing you can think of. You know, if you get sick and die, that's basically the worst outcome that you can think of. But in the interim from, hi, I'm healthy, to two, three, four weeks later, hi, I'm dead, you have to go through this awful, devastating disease, the pock marks, the, um, a lot of people, we a lot of us like to think of chicken pox as a good comparison to smallpox. Well, that's really not the case at all. They just happen to have similar names. The biggest reason probably being that chicken pox, the pox part, you know, the 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 bumps, the the pustules, the stuff that that appears on your body in chicken pox somewhat resembles smallpox. So the the pox part, they say, "Oh, you got a bunch of red bumps and shit on you. It's it's pox of some sort." where chickenpox is actually a member of the the herpes family. So varicella is chickenpox, and later on, if you ever get shingles in your life, that is actually, interestingly enough, I should have sh- saved this for the fun fact of the week, but I guess I'm on a roll. Shingles that you get is actually the chickenpox virus if you are ever infected with the actual virus of chickenpox any time in your life never really leaves you. It goes and burrows its way somewhere in your spinal cord. And then when if you get shingles later on in life, wherever that shingles is on your body, it will tell you exactly the level it hid in your spinal cord. So say your shingles hid somewhere around your, you know, L1 or, you know, kind of that area. You're probably going to get shingles somewhere on, you know, your your lumbar region your stomach lower stomach lower abdomen whereas if it hit a lot higher up in like your c-spine then you're going to get shingles up on your face just because that's the level that it will travel out and shingles scientifically is called herpes zoster so chicken pox and smallpox really aren't all that related name aside because the the chicken pox while i mean technically is probably uh, reasonably deadly as well if left completely and utterly untreated is nothing compared to smallpox. So not only do you have this disease that will probably end up killing you or could end up killing you, you have a really terrible way to go through it. It's a real nasty, suffering, awful disease that just takes its time with you. And in addition, if you do happen to be one of the lucky ones that ends up surviving smallpox, depending on the severity of the case that you had, there's a reasonable chance that you could have these awful, terrible scars for the rest of your life, and and much worse than anyone's chickenpox scars, for sure. Real nasty, pockmarked, nasty disgustingness that is just riddled throughout your body, because smallpox really, really covers the skin pretty badly. So you may end up basically disfigured for life, and you may end up blind as well just because of the, the, the way that, that the smallpox virus attacks um, uh, the neurological system as well. So this whole entire 20-minute exposition, you know, talking about how awful smallpox is, is really just to lend context to why, why it was important to get rid of smallpox or why it was important to figure out a way to get away from this disease because once it started to you know put its roots down in a community somewhere that was it you know you were going to have your smallpox outbreak and you know you might as well kiss 20 to 30 percent of your population goodbye and then go from there um with those who were infected and survived very least would be immune to it forever uh afterwards but those who didn't get infected then were 
you know, still vulnerable to whenever the next outbreak was going to come. Which brings us to the the nexus of our actual story from a man named Onesimus. Now, Onesimus is a is a man who was sold into slavery in in 1706. So when you were treating smallpox at this time now we're going to we're going to take the story over to Boston Massachusetts uh Massachusetts at this point being a colony of the British empire when you're talking about Boston Boston's a really big port city so not only is it a a, a crowded area where lots of people are living close together you know a a, a perfect petri dish for smallpox to exist in, but you also had shipping and you had the port of Boston, which is which was super busy at the time. Um, at this point, Boston was was more populous and more uh, popular and important of a city in the Americas than New York City was, which you know isn't quite the case today with New York City having overtaken Boston long ago, um, population wise. But at this point, Boston was a very important port of trade. Which meant that there were many opportunities for the smallpox virus to come in and take root. When you had ships uh, from all nations, you know, who were shipping into the Americas, we had ships of all nations and British ships and American ships having gone abroad and come back. You have a lot of different opportunities for the smallpox virus to sneak its way into you know, the, the the port of Boston and then through Boston itself. And in fact, Boston had a lot of different small proc, small prox, smallpox outbreaks, uh, particularly in 1677, 1689, and 1702, where usually the mortality rate would reach as high as 30%. And most of the time, public authorities in Massachusetts would deal with these smallpox outbreaks primarily by means of quarantine. So somebody gets smallpox, you just you shut them off to the world and you just kind of hope for the best. Now, unfortunately, since everybody's cramped in really close quarters, you have families of, of, of very large size and varying ages. Even if you quarantine and, and clamp people off, people tend to find a way to get out there and, you know, somebody's going to bring them food or somebody's going to leave the quarantine probably, you know, against the rules or whatever to go get something for their children. Either way, the quarantine was only so effective. And honestly, if you were infected with a with a real bad strain of smallpox and you were one of the groups that was uh, particularly vulnerable, you were probably going to take the disease very poorly, meaning that you were probably going to pass away so I mean and this was the best practice at the time this is the only thing that people knew how to do was to quarantine others and let it pass you know and hope that next time the the disease decides to rear its ugly head that we don't get affected by it so at this point there's a man in Boston named Cotton Mather now he's going to be the one who often gets credit for helping to stave off one of Boston's smallpox outbreaks with a, a, a technique that doesn't necessarily come from Onesimus himself, but had been completely and utterly unheard of in the Americas and basically all of Europe at the time. Now, you can trace what is called inoculation all the way back to about uh, 10th century or 11th century China, but for the most part, there were people in China the Indian subcontinent and Africa all practicing some form of inoculation uh, for things like smallpox. So what what is inoculation exactly? Inoculation is different than vaccination. So inoculation is actually a, a probably a more primitive form, you could say, of vaccination. So vaccinations tend to be a lot more uh, scientifically sophisticated and in the in the, in the case of the smallpox vaccination, they actually used uh, originally cowpox, which is why I went on the whole rant about pox and stuff. But cowpox and smallpox are actually in the same family and related. And a British man, probably seventy years after the story we're talking about, um, noticed that some of the milkmaids who had got, who had gotten cowpox, being around all these cows, 
were completely and utterly immune to smallpox whenever it was, you know, the outbreak. So he was taking, you know, bits of, of, of this cowpox virus and giving it to people and hooray, they were immune to smallpox. But this pre that postdates what we're talking about before. Like I said, there was really no good way to stop smallpox besides quarantining and crossing your fingers and hoping that less people died this time than the last time there was smallpox. Cotton Mather is just this regular old kind of Puritan sort of dude hanging out and living in Boston at the time. He has a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus was probably born sometime in the, uh, you know, kind of the late-ish 1600s over in in Africa, probably somewhere in uh, Sudan. Most records are pretty certain that that's where this man was from. But he finds his way eventually uh, as a slave over to Boston around 1706 up to 1717 when he was then conditionally freed from Cotton Mather's service, which Cotton Mather was very happy to get rid of him because Mr. Mather thought that Onesimus was kind of a dickhead and that he was irreligious because, remember, Mather is a super Puritan, so everything revolves around God with him. Um, at, at Onesimus is basically refusal to convert to uh, Christianity in any way. And basically, Cotton Mather's a total giant asshole. But there was one thing that for some reason he decided to listen to Onesimus about, and that was the theory of inoculation. Now, nobody in the Americas at this time had really ever heard or gotten the information about inoculation until this point. And, and going back to our further point, inoculation is basically the difference between that and vaccination is inoculation. You're actually taking some sort of living, gross ass part of somebody, uh, uh, the disease portion, and putting it into someone else and just like, hey, hopefully this works out. So at this point, Everybody's freaking out about this next smallpox outbreak that's going on. At some point during Onesimus's slavery or indentured servitude sort of uh, relationship that he had with Mather, he talks about how when he was in Africa, they actually had a way to stop smallpox or to at least make it you know much less deadly and fatal than it typically was that he was observing over in the Americas. And in fact, Onesimus himself was inoculated from smallpox from their from their technique. Well, then Mather's like, well, what the hell are you talking about, man? I mean, there's no way to stop smallpox, right? So Onesimus, this slave, basically says, hey, this is how we do things. We find a person who has smallpox. We take a bunch of the pus, gross, from the smallpox boils. We then gather all that. We then take it to people who ha- who don't have smallpox yet or never had smallpox or whatever it is, and we make a series of cuts or kind of holes, whatever you want to call it, on their skin, usually up around their arm, but it could be up on their stomach or anywhere, really. We just make cuts in the person, and then we take the gross-ass pus, and then we put it in the person, and we spread it all around in there, and it tends to basically lead to some amount of immunity because when it came down to it, these people had sort of a really decent understanding of germ theory without really knowing that that's what they were talking about. You know, if you look at history as a whole, a lot of things like the Black Death and all these other things, probably smallpox as well, um, you know, people thought of these things as kind of divine retribution or bad air or spirits or some sort of untouchable thing was causing uh, disease to to run rampant in their populations, in their societies, and that there was really nothing they could do. They didn't really understand because you can't, with your eyes, without assistance from some sort of, of, of magnifying lens, you can't see these microscopic things, and especially viruses, you still can't see them even with the best of microscopes. It takes, you know, getting to the electron range to really actually visualize these viruses because they are so small. But people didn't have this understanding that there was, you know, there were some little tiny things getting into you, and those things were messing with the little parts of you, which they also didn't really understand about because they couldn't see them. 
and fucking you up so badly that you got sick and died. Amazingly, these people almost intuitively kind of figured it out that if you take the pieces of the people who are sick and put them into non-sick people, yes, these people would also usually become sick. And in fact, that was the risk that you ran with inoculation that about probably, oh, who knows, 3 4% or, or so of people who are inoculated would eventually die because they would get the disease they were being inoculated against and it would kill them. But for the most part, most people just got a very uh, mild case comparatively of whatever disease, in this case, smallpox, of course. Say you're inoculating against smallpox, you, you get the guy, dead dude, on a cart somewhere or a dying, actively dying dude on a cart somewhere. You, you, you cut open a bunch of his gross-ass pustules. You take all the pus out and you cut open the skin of the other people who aren't affected and you put that pus in. Well, that's active, active, live, going for it, smallpox virus. But for some reason, introducing just this little bit into them typically only gave people this really mild case of the disease and then after they had gotten over their mild case of the disease they usually weren't nearly as badly pockmarked as most people were if they went through a full-blown course of smallpox and survived they usually didn't go through the the agony of the smallpox virus at, at, at nearly as high a rate as people who like I said went through the full-blown course of the virus and then afterward they were immune they didn't get smallpox anymore because of the body's you know immune response to viral agents. So Onesimus, just, you know, just regular old Onesimus, just a black slave from who knows where, tells this man, Cotton Mather, in Boston, that this is what we did. We cut each other open and put nasty-ass pus from these uh, from these other smallpox victims into ourselves. And, and, you know, look at me. Every time we've had any sort of smallpox thing come through here, nothing's happened to me. I've been immune to it every single time. And you know why? It's because I was inoculated while I was over in Africa before I came here. And in particular, Onesimus was actually quoted, I guess you could say, where Mather wrote out what he said. Mather says that Onesimus said to him, quote, people take juice of smallpox and cutty skin and put in a drop. So this is kind of how Onesimus describes to to Mather what they do, how they do it. And for some reason, even though Mather really didn't get along with Onesimus all that well, because Onesimus was actually kind of a smart guy and probably challenged Mather's own intelligence and he didn't really, you know, jive with that whole thing, Mather really considered this like something, you know, that would actually work. I mean, it was the the proof was in the pudding with Onesimus himself. I mean, the guy was immune to smallpox. He showed him the scar that they had from the inoculation. He described that, and in Mather's head, he said, yeah, that makes complete and total sense. So he then writes a letter during one of the smallpox outbreaks in Boston to the royal governor, who was the person in charge of Massachusetts at the time, being still a, a colonial, you know, a, a colony of, of Britain. He writes to the royal governor saying, hey, I was told by my slave, Onesimus, who is a great dude, by the way, literally his letter is just like, ah, he's a really very smart fellow, actually, tells me that this is how we can fight back against smallpox and make it so that it's not such a big deal. Well, the second that everybody hears about inoculation, first of all, they're like, what the fuck even is this? Because nobody's, like I said, nobody really knows this particular technique to to treat disease because nobody really everybody's super uneducated for the most part besides a very select few so everybody's dumb as fuck to begin with and then they hear about this and like i don't understand why this why why does it work like this and then on top of all that they hear about the 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 technique they're like ew and then they're like oh you also got it told by some black dude in africa ugh Black, ugh, African magic, what is this? And it's just a bunch of racist nonsense, you know, where they think it's, oh, it's, it, it definitely can't be legit, despite the fact that, you know, he only has his own, you know, anecdotal evidence, but his anecdotal evidence, at the very least, is better than any other dumb bullshit that, that you guys have done. So it, it, it wouldn't hurt 
to try. You'd think logically that that would be the case. Well, of course, everybody rejects it. Like, no, no, you're, you're Cotton Mather and your bullshit technique. You are not coming anywhere near us with that African nonsense. Well, Mather doesn't give a shit and decides to still carry out the method that Onesimus had described to him on 242 people. So among that 242 people, that population only experienced six deaths, which is a little bit less than 2.5% compared to um, another larger population size of 5,889 people who were not inoculated uh, with the technique that Onesimus describes. And they had 844 people die, which is about 14%. Now, 14%, like we're talking about with smallpox, actually not bad. Usually a smallpox, a really typical rampaging smallpox outbreak will probably take about 30% of people. So this one wasn't as bad as the other one ones were to begin with at a 14.3% death rate. But with Onesimus's technique in hand, only about 2.5% of people died. At this point, inoculation starts to take hold a little bit. Other people hear about this particular thing happening. And this is how things go for a while until you get to uh, the later end of the 1700s. And then there's a gentleman over in Britain who figures out the cowpox and smallpox connection and develops the first smallpox vaccine. So there you go. I mean, for all we know, we the Americas might have been even more devastated and more fucked up when it came to smallpox had it not been for a black man, a slave, who was African-born, brought over to Boston, who described the process of inoculation that had been used in his tribe for, for years beforehand. Yeah, this slave who's so who's so lowborn and so unintelligent, these slaves and their culture, how can they be they're they're just they're just savages. Yet they're over here fucking basically vaccinating people against smallpox while people in Boston are running around with their heads cut off like dumbasses. So I mean, who knows how bad it could have gotten had a, Onesimus not described what he had seen in Africa in terms of inoculation, and B, had Cotton Mather not taken him for his word and given it a try. So we can basically thank the beginning of modern Western medicine vaccination to Onesimus, a slave, describing inoculation to Cotton Mather, which eventually, as you know these days, Smallpox doesn't exist in the wild anymore. We have basically and utterly eradicated smallpox from the world. It's it's amazing because in the 20th century alone, up to the point where smallpox was eradicated from Earth, about 300 to 500 million people somewhere in that range died from smallpox just in the 20th century. It, it's it's a it's a rampaging, awful disease, and efforts from people like Onesimus, a scientist in his own right led to this revolution of inoculation and vaccination, which, by the way, kids, vaccination is important. Diseases that we figure out to ways to prevent can go away. I mean, the same thing has basically happened with polio as well. Polio used to run rampant in the United States. I mean, one of our presidents was stricken with polio. Polio used to be this huge thing. Wards lined up with iron lungs used to be a thing. It's not a thing anymore because we found a vaccine for polio and we rampantly gave it to people and then we fucking got rid of polio just like smallpox. That's important. Important contributions to the science of vaccination and inoculation come from people like Onesimus. And I think this is just overall a very interesting and fun story, not just about disease process, but taking an understanding of, of a different culture's ideas and putting them with your own and actually coming up with a really great solution to something. So there you go. The story of Onesimus and the inoculation of smallpox in the new world leading to today there is no more smallpox. And now, of course, your non-sector fact of the week. In the United States, about 190 million Valentine's Day cards are sent each year, and that doesn't include the hundreds of millions of cards that school children will exchange every Valentine's Day. 
Valentine's Day is a major source of economic activity with total expenditures in 2017 topping $18.2 billion with a B or $136 per person. Well, that's a fun Valentine's Day fact. And thus we have reached the end of Season 2, Episode 3 of the Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. Guys, you can follow the show on Twitter at the Couch Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. You can follow me on Instagram at Kyle F. Steinhauser. You can find the show on Facebook. Search Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. I post there like once a week or maybe once more than that, but not terribly often, but you can always get more info from the show. And I do enjoy seeing people comment and and look at the, the, the page posts from there. It is fantastic. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to the podcast via Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or any podcast thing that you like to do. Another review, because I told you guys I was going to read reviews every single time I had one or I had extra reviews. This one is from Tunatog, the title of the review. Good Listen. Kyle picks some great history to cover and does it in his own way. I thoroughly enjoy it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that five-star review about this ridiculous goddamn podcast. Guys, thank you so much for listening this week. We will continue and end our Black History Month um, series of episodes next week. But until then, guys, to quote a somewhat well-known commander in Starfleet... Live long and prosper. If you want-